0: Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. Hello, and welcome to another
1: episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host today, Jen Uner, Strategic Communications Director for LRN. Today, I'm joined by Nadine Jones, General Counsel of Kuna Nagel USA, as of April 1st, actually, which is part of the $18 billion Global Logistics Company. Nadine is also co-founder and associate executive director and immediate past director of the initiative Advancing the Blue and Black Partnership. This is an organization she founded with friends from Howard University in the weeks following the murder of George Floyd. We're going to be talking about the initiative, but we're also going to be talking about her career, her advice for ENC professionals advancing their own careers, the unique challenges women of color face navigating business and legal worlds, and her own, I must say, hyperproductive approach to work and to activism. It's Women's History Month in the U.S., and so I think it's a good time to reflect on where we are. Nadine, thank you for joining me on the Principal Podcast.
2: Thank you, Jen. Thank you for having me.
1: Nadine, I have such admiration for what you do. I'm kind of amazed at how you actually do all the things that you do. You're one of those women who like slays dragons and leaps tall buildings in a single bound. I know this because uh, we had the chance to work closely together for the launch of the initiative last summer, or at least the launch of the um, courses that we produced um, for you and are continuing to produce for the initiative. We're going to talk about that a little later, though. I kind of want to focus first on, on your career. You were just promoted to general counsel, and congratulations on that, by the way. I think our audience of ENC professionals, they'd really like to learn from your trajectory and your experience. Like, how did you get where you are today? I mean, this is a very big job. I know about Howard University, but not much else. Can we start at the beginning? Can we start with your background? Like, where did you grow up? How did you choose Howard? get me started.
2: I actually grew up in Montreal, Canada, working class parents, working class family. I did visit Howard, not as a student, we visited for homecoming, you know, Howard's homecoming is world renowned practically. And I didn't really think anything else about it. I did always want to be a lawyer, but I never seen anyone in my family Be a lawyer, and I didn't think I was smart enough to be a lawyer, and it was just you know hmm, might be nice, but that's not for me. You know, get a good job, and which I did. And it was um, Emma who was is one of the co founders of the initiative, and we'll talk more about later. She got into Howard Law, so we did undergrad together, and she went on to um, Howard Law, and, and I mentioned you know you know, I always wanted to be a lawyer, but I'm not smart enough. And she's like, but we're the same. If I can do it, you can do it. And I thought, hmm, we actually are the same, right? Because we'd been friends for years by then, partying together. I don't think she'd mind if I shared that and um, whatever shenanigans we were getting into. And I had just never really thought about it in that way, that we we are the same. And it was uh, a great example of representation mattering. And I believed her when she said, if I can do it, you can do it. And so I applied and I got in and I don't mind saying I did great. (laughs) I was pretty good at it, you know, but it took someone breaking down a a barrier and showing me that it was possible and somebody that I could relate to showing me that it was possible and I then believed that it was possible and she was right. It was possible. So that's how I got my start at Howard. And um, I've been in the United States ever since then. It's my adopted home. I love it. And we can talk about its flaws, its challenges. Oh I God. see it. But we I have so many. <laughs> I love, I, I chose this country. I wasn't running from anywhere. Um, Canada is pretty cool if you've ever been there.
1: I got to ask you, Montreal. Do you, you do you speak French? Isn't it French based there? It is. It is French based there, and I'm
2: considered what they would call anglophone. So my parentage and so forth. I'm not francophone, and politics and language is heavily politicized in Quebec, and it was. It felt very oppressive as an as an English person. What is the point of the of that story? It's you can politicize anything, people, (laughs) anything. It's not just race and ethnicity. It could be language. It could be geography.
1: I think you're absolutely right. Like you can politicize most anything. Most anything. Yep. So you went to Howard. I think it's interesting. You always knew you wanted to be a lawyer. I did. I always knew my mother
2: thought that I should be a teacher. She still does. She's accepted that I'm a lawyer, but I think in her heart of hearts, she always wanted me to be a teacher. But somehow I just always felt it. I always knew that I, this was what I wanted to do. I just thought it was out of reach.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad that Ama like, helped you see that that wasn't necessarily the case and that you were able to apply to law school and get in. And, of course, now here we see you absolutely succeeding. A question for you about your ENC experience that's your background now in law. Did you, is that correct? I don't want to make an assumption. It's what, it's the reason why
2: I joined, uh, KN Kuninagel was to head up their corporate, um, ethics and compliance program. And I still wear that hat, which is something, you know, we can talk about. You might change roles, but you still have, insights that you carry with you from whatever experiences that you've had. And it's a plus, it's it's not a minus. So yes, I'm still involved to some degree, particularly in areas of where I have some background like antitrust, for example, I'm still heavily involved in that, but it is no longer my full-time role. I moved out of uh, ethics and compliance in December of 2017. And moved fully into the compli- um, the general counsel's office of the same company, but supported compliance, supported um, the new officer and still continue to this day. I'm still um, seen as the go to person for certain ethical and um, ethics and corporate compliance matters, certainly for DEI as well as a woman of color, as a black woman. In a still heavily dom- male-dominated space, and I have a title to my name, I have a lot of visibility and a, and a really good platform from which to speak. So I do speak as much as I'm invited to speak to help highlight certain issues for our women's um, International Women's Day. So it's um, it's a privilege. It's actually a, a great space and a comfortable space to, to be in. And I don't like to play the age card because I think it makes the younger folks feel uncomfortable, but it is so rewarding to see how they react and, and how excited they are and just to hear their comments and they'll, they'll come by my office. They don't know if they should come in, if they can't come in. And they're, they're just the enthusiasm that they have. So I consider it a privilege to be able to enter their space. They sometimes feel nervous to enter into my space, but I tell them my door is always open. And uh, I love it. I do love that part.
1: I, I think that's always a case when you're, you know, as as you move up in, in your uh, career, I think you do find that happens where there's that... Uh, you know, somebody in the C-suite, for example, you're you're never going to just even if they're really welcoming and saying like, "Come on in," you're always a little bit hesitant, right? Because there's a bit of that hierarchy, right? You don't want to overstep. You don't want to. You don't want to do something wrong. That's right. Yes, that's, that's kind of how I how I see it. So that you know, the fact that you've been uh, very visible in the company on uh, topics of ethics and compliance, and and you you hold this this visible role and, and people do seek you out um, for your expertise, for example, in DEI. Is that something that you're going to continue to do in your new role? Yes, it will be. If they will have me,
2: it will be because <laughs> one, I'm the only woman GC or only woman who will be holding that title in the next few weeks. I'm the only Black person <laughs> who is on the board ever. And the U.S., Company is about, I don't know, almost 70 years old. So it's a pretty big deal. And just by me being who I am, it has, you know, generated a, a strong reaction and it speaks to diversity and it speaks to equity and it speaks to inclusion. The fact that I'm homegrown in the sense that I joined CAN, I'm in my 10th year. this company and the fact that the company was able to develop me to the point where i would be even viable for this role speaks volumes to those who are here because it shows that the opportunities are in fact here we didn't have to outsource we didn't have to find somebody from europe to come in to fill this role we were able to find a person here who had received enough development and mentorship to be able to handle this role. So I think just by the very nature of the body I occupy, the history of the organization, I think DEI is going to be something that I contribute to and happily do so. One of the things I like to do is show them my own um, evolution, my own biases, my own efforts to be more inclusive. And I think it helps because as a black woman, the presumption is, oh, you know how to do this. You have no biases. You are automatically inclusive and uh, welcome diversity. We all have our biases. We all have our uh, blind spots is what I will call them. So when I'm invited to speak, I I share and I share my own evolution and my own challenges in, in whatever area. So it's so far, it seems to be well, well-received.
1: That's great. That's, that's good to hear. And, and certainly we do all have our own blind spots. I think that's a great word. I, I have to say DEI is um, kind of top of mind this month uh, for us at LRN because we have big product news. Um, we're releasing a new DEI program. It combines our customizable courses, which I'm not even sure if you're familiar with the uh, with the courseware that we're producing now, uh, we have a whole learn it, work it, prove it model. Um, there are powerful videos included. And in fact, like the meaning maker video that we did, uh, for the initiative, we, we do, you know, similar kinds of assets for, um, for our DEI uh, courses, but we're also now expanding that DEI program to include like uh, ready to go out of the box, you know, email templates, huddle guides, learning action plans, Um, the idea is to create kind of a more meaningful multi-touch, uh, program that sustains over time. And so like all, all those courses and all of those things come together, um, to kind of keep the, to keep the momentum going through, through the year. And, and, and I would say it's kind of like how we, how, how you would communicate about sort of any kind of corporate values. It's something that you do with repetition over time across channels and moments. You don't just like, you don't just have like a one and done, like, oh, now we're trained. (laughs) So I'm curious how Kuna Nagel shapes DEI programs presently. And I mean, I know you're not necessarily directly working with them right now, but, you know, do you have any highlights or insights you could share about uh, the programs there?
2: I want to say to give the company credit, Kay Credit, we started this, I can't give you the exact year, but I want to say 2018, 2019, the company invested, I believe, uh, millions of dollars in what it calls its care initiative, and um, from the highest to to the lowest, and everyone in between, we were in, uh, encouraged, strongly encouraged to participate in this program. And so we hired um, leadership to spearhead it, the head of DEI, and and so forth. And so we've been we've been pounding this drum for. Um, we, you know, years before the up, the upheaval in 2020 and, and the racial equity discussions that have um, since spawned or spurred, you know, from that. So I want to say 2018, we went full out into the CARE initiative, which is about inclusion, about hearing other voices. Internally, the focus was to start on internally with how we treat each other internally with an understanding that that would spill over in terms of how we treat our customers. We're still a profit for profit corporation. You know, we care about our customers, but we wanted to create an environment where we had the touches. So I love what you said about uh, you can't do one and done. You can't pass a policy that we shall now all care about each other. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you need to create the infrastructure where you have the touches. And I'll share a quick story. Um, we still do our care, we, it was maintained even through the, the pandemic um, periods when we were not physically in the office. So it started out with like physically in the office, group team meetings from different pockets within the company so that we get to see and meet and develop relationships with folks outside of our departments, outside of our, our wheelhouse. And then during the pandemic, of course, like everyone else, and mostly everyone else, we moved to conference calls, Zoom and, and other, other platforms. And I wasn't always the best, I'll be honest, I wasn't always the best about joining, which is something that I've decided to stop doing, especially now with my new position. I think it's more important that I make the effort to make those, those calls. But within my sub-care team, I have one Ukrainian national. And we were talking weeks ago. This was before the actual invasion. And these are my words. I know that other people might have different views, but that's how I'm seeing um, what happened. And I, she mentioned that her family was in the Ukraine. Uh, in Ukraine. And I said, Oh, they're still, they're still there. They didn't leave. She said, no, they, they didn't leave. And I said, okay, you know, but you, you are seeing the buildup that's happening. She's like, I see it and they see it. But I said, well, look, we, we pray, we pray for the best and that everything will be um, okay. And a few weeks after that, we all know what happened. Uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. I woke up that morning, maybe it was a Friday morning, Anyway, at some point, I woke up and saw what had happened. My first thought was to my care group. And I logged on and I Zoom chatted her. And I said, I'm just seeing what happened. And I want you to know that your family is in my my prayers. And I'm, I'm praying for their safety. Now, would that have been my first thought had I not had a relationship within my care group, I would have sympathized with Ukraine. I don't know if I would have had that level of empathy had I not known this person over the course of however many years I've been in her care group, four years, I, that human element where her family, I could, I could, I could almost transpose my family onto her family. And that's when you move from sympathy to empathy, I think, for me anyway. So that's an example of um, the importance of continuous touches and seeing each other and being able to um, empathize with with each other. If you're just in your silo or if it's just an academic exercise or if it's just a mandate from your CEO saying thou shalt care, (laughs) <laughs> with nothing else behind it and no infrastructure to have those human interactions, then you just have what we all know in the e world. You just have a a program on paper. You don't yeah. have it in, in reality. Check the box. It's a check the box, right?
1: Yeah. I, you know, I think that's a really interesting example and certainly a really poignant one with everything that's going on right now. And I And I think it does really, it does really speak to the company that you work for and the, the care that they take around care, and I think you're you're absolutely right. Like you might not have thought of that first um, if you hadn't been involved in that program. Which which then kind of it makes me think of something um, that I overheard the other day from one of my colleagues. She was talking to a, a VP of diversity and inclusion who's like maybe ninety days into the job, and this person was saying that the real value of DEI programs is is that most people aren't really going out there to to read books or even know who. Brene Brown is, for example, or like, you know, it's not something like you don't put it necessarily on your agenda, just like you wouldn't have necessarily put on your agenda uh, uh, connecting with this, this person from the Ukraine. It's because the company took the initiative to um, increase awareness and understanding and, and, you know, building a culture of respect um, in the organization that, that you guys were, were exposed to this, exposed to each other on a regular basis. So it did become like, that became the first thing that you, Mm -hmm. that you thought about. So, uh, you know, in a, in a way it's kind of the whole idea of this is really, um, because if you don't find it outside the company, you know, it's, it really is kind of a tone from the top sort of thing. The company, the company prioritizes it. And, uh, and, and then there you are, like, it's, it's actually shifted your perspective and your behavior. Like, what, what you, what you thought first. So that's a lot of words to just say, um, you're going to be at the top, right? You're going to be part of the, the group that is forming, um, priorities going forward for the company as part of the leadership team. Um, are there any items that you're going to want to surface in your, in your new role?
2: I'll be the new kid on the block. So I will just be, I, I know most of them. Uh, from my role in ethics and and you know ENC, ethics and corporate compliance, which is a great role actually to to expose you to people from all walks of the organization. It's a very high should be anyway, a platform where you do have exposure to the board, from the receptionist to the CEO, to the global CEO. And you know no one has told me this, but I can't help but think that that exposure, helped to launch me into this general counsel role because you make relationships and you keep them wherever you go. But that's a, that's a bit of an aside. I'm going to, they will not, they will now be my peers and I'm the, I will be the second woman uh, on the board, first person of color. I don't know what their expectations are. I think they're watching me and I'm learning them in this, in this new role. But here's the thing. I I don't have to go in with an agenda in in particular. I just see the world differently than they do. And I feel empowered enough to voice that. So, for instance, I sit on the, um, even before being appointed the next GC, I sit on the investment committee. I was invited last year to sit on the investment committee, which is the fiduciary committee, right, from obligation for 401ks and make sure that we are investing soundly and that things are in compliance with um with you know applicable law and so forth. First woman and you know one of the questions I had almost maybe the second meeting like how are the women doing? Do we know if there's any gaps in terms of investment or use of the company's um, offerings between genders and the response was, you know, we've never really thought about it. And that's a great idea. That's an example of inclusion. It was quickly, quickly supported by the men. And just, I was just curious. I just wanted to see if there were any gaps. So I don't have a clear agenda. I'm just bringing my whole self into this role.
1: Yeah. I, I, that's, that's a great, that's a great way to put it. I had a a boss once that would say, um, you don't know what you don't know. (laughs) And, and I think that's kind of a great example, right? You, you're in this group and they, they'd never considered something where you, you're just there with you yourself (laughs) in the room and realizing, um, Hey, what about this? And no one had even considered that before. I think that really does speak to the, um, extreme value of, inclusivity and diversity Mm -hmm. in the workplace. So, I mean, clearly you're, you're pioneering a bit, you're breaking barriers. You're the, I think you said the second woman on the board and the first black woman, this notion of breaking barriers. Do you, do you think that's a big deal, a small deal? Does it not really matter because it's the right thing to be happening anyway? I'm, I'm just curious your perspective on that.
2: It matters. It's over. It's, it's intimidating. Uh, but I'll I'll separate the answer. It absolutely matters, right? Remember I told you it was Emma and my ability to relate to her and see myself in her that gave me the courage I needed to step out of my comfort zone and try law school. It absolutely matters. We have to see someone that is relatable break the barrier to know that it's possible for ourselves. So it does matter. It is encouraging. It is, it, you know, it brings hope. It's validating. When I, when the announcement was made public, there were women, especially women of color, Latinx women, um, who can see themselves in me that were just over, they were overjoyed, but also really emotional, really emotional. And that first day when the announcement went out, it was, um, it was overwhelming for me to see the reaction of, of mostly the women, not just women of color, just women in general. And it confirms the importance of representation, of seeing what's possible, even if it's through somebody else who was like you. It's intimidating in the sense that you, f- you feel, I feel, I'll speak for myself, I feel the magnitude this um, appointment, I feel the magnitude of being on the board of looking like me and being a board member, the magnitude of it. That said, my CEO and um, I feel supported. So if I were in an environment where I had to claw my way to the top against people who were less than supportive, maybe even antagonistic, but doing it because it's the new social norm. Maybe that's how they might look at it. It's the new trend and there's no real support. Can you imagine what that must feel like? Actually, I can't imagine what that must feel like. But because I, I feel supported internally, even though it's a new role, a big role, it's a, pr- it's a historic role as, as one woman um told me this is a historical moment in our organization. I don't feel like I'm set up to fail. I feel like I'm set up to succeed because I know the board member and my CEO in particular, who I won't purport to put words in his mouth, but at least how he, how I perceive him, my interactions with him so supportive, even the global parent who's, light years away from the United states incredibly supportive and encouraging so it is important you can't just plop a woman on the board or a black person for the first time and say good luck <laughs> and expect them to thrive you need to support your you need to support us that is an element of inclusion that is part of Equity that is part of diversity. If you if you really want it to work, and I do feel supported, I do.
1: That's that's so good to hear, and it is it is so important. And I and I think um, in in any kind of environment where you know collaboration is going to be really key, you you need to have that. You need to have that um, respect and appreciation for each other and what they bring to the table, and you know the the skills, knowledge, experience, perspective, everything, those are all valuable inputs into, into whatever, you know, problem the team needs to solve.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, Taking a whole turn. uh, I would love to talk about the initiative. Um, We worked together that uh, on the initiative uh, last year it's continuing this year. I can't wait to catch up on what's been happening. Um, but before we dive into that, can you share with us a little bit of the Genesis story of the initiative?
2: Yes. So the initiative was launched in July of 2020. Actually, it was June of 2020. And it was birthed out of trauma, I guess is the right word. If we all recall, and some of us don't even want to look back to 2020, it's the year that shall never be mentioned again. I get it. <laughs> but let's look back a little bit of what was happening. And there was incredible uprest or... Unrest. Unrest.
1: Unrest and uprising. Yeah. <laughs>
2: unrest and uprising in the, in the area of policing, police interactions with black and brown bodies. And being the mother of a black son myself... It was at the point where we really could not just sit back and do nothing. Myself and the other two co-founders, Black women, Howard alumna as well, mothers of Black sons and daughters. I'm the only one with just a son. And we decided that we were going to use our corporate knowledge and, and experience in terms of building sustainable, scalable solutions, along with our Howard civil rights training. And we were going to enter this space. It was kind of, you know, a bit of woman arrogance. Like, you know, if you want it done right, just got to, to do it ourselves. <laughs> and we were thinking about it in terms of the measures that we have taken generationally to protect our children, which is having the talk, what to do. If um, encountered by the police, you're black, you can't do what you're white friends do, be respectful, make sure they see your hands, you know, all of those things that we do, which basically just kind of steals and takes their innocence way, way too young. Um, we decided it's not working and that we need something that's more sustainable. And we entered this space with the purpose of building something that lasts. And in order to do that, reconciling those two Groups, the blue community, the black community, in particular. But to do that, we knew we had to work collaboratively, and that's our corporate upbringing. That's telling us that you can't do anything in a silo and expect it to work and be sustainable. It's not. It's not going to work, and it's not going to be sustainable. And you touched on this, Jen, earlier. You know, just simply having something on paper and saying go forth and prosper, so to speak, is not going to be enough. You need to have some touches there. You have to create some infrastructure to bridge divides, to create positive relationships. So that's why we got into the space. It was not just because of what we all witnessed with the George Floyd video. It was not just what we witnessed with Ahmaud Arbery being gunned down by civilian, but a former. Um, police officer and and the handling of that um, murder, what we can now say is murder by that police department was, you know, shocking. And it wasn't the slew of others that we have seen. It was simply a point of decision that um, we're entering into the space and we're going to do it collaboratively, but we are emerging from the space with the fervent hope and belief to make everybody safer The blue community, because now you've got members of the civilian community that have humanized them, uh, how the blue community views us. And the us is no longer just black
1: folks. One of the things that you that you started with with the initiative was I think there were some uh, dashboards for assessment of municipalities. And then, of course, the courses that we um, are developing with you, the first one being on mindfulness, um, Mm -hmm. which are courses that police are offered to take. How is that going? Um, What kind of adoptions have you been getting for the the platform and the programs that you're doing? And and what's next? I know that you are already working on uh, ideas for the next courses that we can help you bring Mm -hmm. uh, to the initiative. Well, the mindfulness
2: um, training that LRN developed for us, um, was is just remarkable, and 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 we didn't ex- we didn't do it for the purpose of it serving as an icebreaker, but it turned out that when officers saw that we were concerned about their well-being as well as our own, it opened a a, a door. I, I don't know how to explain it. So we made it for, LRN did it for free. That was their contribution to the space. It's phenomenal. It's world-class. It's incredible quality. And we shared it with police communities for free. And there was no judgment in it. It was, this is, you know, brain science. We called it Operation Brain Strategies because we were told by Police, if you call it mindfulness, no no self respecting <laughs> officer is going to take a mindfulness <laughs> training. So we called it Operation Brain Strategies, but it was, it, there was no judgment. It was just, this is just the human species. This is just how we function. So it was a great way. It was like an offering here, we care about you. And we developed that first after we got through, um, the pain and the horror of what we saw, and crying—we were sobbing all the time. It was just a <laughs> mess in the summer of twenty twenty. But the more we spoke with officers, we saw them more, and we said, "Hey, this is tough. This is—we're going to come up with something that uh, shows that we see what they're doing, and that it's not easy. And there is nothing defective about a, an officer who has, you know, a moment. It's—it's—it's a, it's a, it's a tough." Heartbreaking job, so that was a great way to come out. And um, we, the next one slated, is to talk about to show in the same similar e-module format how to actually engage with members of the community. And you're right, we did build two tools. One's called Central, which is uh, police agency facing. And the other is called um, Central Plus, which is community facing. And one assesses the police agency's readiness to engage in a collaborative, proactive type of policing with civilians. Not all agencies are equipped to do that. They are equipped to be warriors, but they're not equipped to be collaborators. And so we help. The agencies uh, self-assess their readiness and maybe opportunities where they can make some changes to become a a police agency that can engage in that caliber or that type of policing. And then we develop Central Plus, which is community facing, which is basically an intake. Just assess your community. And we do it across policing, certainly public safety and policing, but other areas like education, access to resources, health. These are all areas that, if broken, will intersect with the police industry. And policing is not responsible for some of these breakdowns. So it's a way for the police leadership in a particular precinct area, we did it at a zip code level, can see what the concerns are and the top concerns and challenges within his or her precinct area. Thank you for asking about that. We're very proud of those tools, by the
1: way. <laughs> you know, I I'm I continue to be impressed by it, and I know that we are we're all excited here to collaborate with you on on building the next um, set of uh, e-learning tools for this for this program. You know, one of the things that I I hear you say again and again is is about relationships, is about collaboration, is about empathy. Kind of a, a last question for you here. I know we're like. At time, past time, advice for those that are um, coming up behind you in in the world, in the legal world, in the world of uh, ethics and compliance. What what advice do you have for the next generation on how to do those things?
2: Gosh, there's so much, I, and I and I don't want to push you over time, but relationships are key, and don't be transactional with your relationships. You don't know where somebody. Is going to be tomorrow and that shouldn't be your only basis for wanting to develop a relationship so don't be transactional about it spend the time invest the time i know not every day you feel like asking how was your weekend on the monday some mondays are tougher than others it doesn't really take a lot though to be interested and uh, for the other person to perceive that you do have an interest in them. It could be less than 5 minutes and you're like, "Oh, I got to call, I got to go." You know, and you may not see them again for another 2 weeks or so forth. But take the time. Invest the time. We are tied as a society. We are as as you're basically creating an environment that's going going to ultimately be better for you within the corporation and I would add this outside of the corporation. We are privileged to work for corporations that have invested in this space. Take it with you into your spheres of influence outside of the corporation where others may not be privileged to have access to LRN teachings and and resources and the like, and and have some humility about it. Not everyone is exposed to, to, to this type of learning. So those would be my, that's my advice. Just invest, take time, care about people. Doesn't have to be anything major and take that with you in all of your environments. Don't compartmentalize it and use it only in the corporate world. It is your obligation. I think as a human being in this world to take that with you, if you know better, do better. That's what I said on the women's um, meeting. Um, Speech on, on
1: the eighth year, KN. If you know better, do better. If you know better, do better. That is a great note to end on. Nadine, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Principal Podcast. My name is Jen Uner, and I want to thank all uh, of you listening um, for staying with us. We will be back next week with another LRN host and uh, expert talking about ethics, culture, and compliance.
0: Thank you, Jen. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.